You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Well, good morning again. We're in a sermon series going through 2 Timothy, and we're looking at finishing and starting well. And 2 Timothy, uh, Paul wrote this letter while he's in prison, waiting to be executed, and he's writing to Timothy, his young protege, uh, to encourage him in ministry. And in today's passage, Paul tells Timothy to be strengthened by the grace in Jesus, to train people who can teach others, and to share in suffering. In fact, we can summarize the main point of today's passage as be strengthened to share in suffering. And as we'll see, that's a rich, radical, upside-down message um, for us today. So uh, before we jump in, let me pray for us. God, you tell us in this passage that your word is not bound. God, we ask that you would uh, release your word now. God, speak to us. God, move in our hearts Um, Stir us by faith um, to receive what you have for us in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Now, as we unpack this passage, we're going to look at three things. The mission of suffering, the preparation for suffering, and the victory to suffer well. So the mission, the preparation, and the victory to suffer well. So first, the mission. We're called to suffer. We're called to be strengthened to suffer. We're called to prepare for suffering. And you might not want to hear that. I mean, after all, you might think, actually, we should do our best to avoid suffering. I'll get back to that. Um, But the Christian trajectory for life is to accumulate strength so that we can move towards suffering. Jesus commands us to use power to share in suffering. Strength is not the opposite of suffering. It's a useful tool to help us suffer. We're called to take risks in love to alleviate suffering for others. And we're called to be vulnerable to meaningful risks so that we can serve the world. And this is extremely radical. In contrast, the belief today is we should avoid suffering at all costs. So modern society would maybe instead say, be strengthened to avoid suffering. So in other words, accumulate resources, wealth, power, knowledge, control, whatever you need. Because if you have a strong enough position, 
then you can avoid suffering. So take money as an example. If you have enough money, maybe it takes a lot, but if you have enough money, you could drive a really safe car and you can live in a safe neighborhood without crime. You can have state-of-the-art security services, right? Shoot lasers at people when they come to your front door. You can send your kids to all the best schools, all the best programs, connect them to the right people who owe you favors, right? So you can guarantee that they'll succeed when they grow up, no matter what they're starting with. And you can have access to the best doctors and the best medical services, medical care. When I worked in New York, I had a a very, very wealthy boss at one point. And he was saying that for like $5 million a year, that's all it takes, you can get direct access to the best doctors and the best hospitals on demand. Like you have their personal cell phone. You want them, you got them. That's it. You know, so for money, you can get that. We think whatever risks exist in life, if you have the means, you can ensure that you never have to deal with them. There are people you don't want to deal with. Enough money can keep them away. We think with enough money, you can cultivate a life of comfort, control, peace, and prosperity. And this is, with all due respect, one of the most tragic delusions of our time. And let me tell you two reasons why pursuing strength to avoid suffering is deadly. And first, well, it just doesn't work. Right? There are just too many examples of wildly successful people who destroy their lives because they're overcome with addiction or they get cancer. I mean, Steve Jobs was the most influential, successful, powerful innovator and businessman of his time, but that didn't make him invincible. And in fact, when he got his diagnosis, rather than li- at first listen to what the doctor said, he's like, you know what? I can handle this on my own. He might still be here otherwise but the delusion goes even deeper it's not just that there are some risks we can't avoid our modern society believes that give us enough time give us enough education enough technology enough progress and we can completely dominate the risks of the world we can use strength to avoid suffering and so like a comical example of this delusion i don't know if you know who elon musk is He's the the innovator behind Tesla and SpaceX. So he thinks, you know, if the Earth becomes too risky to live in, we should just all move to space, right? Because moving our civilization by rockets to moons and planets that haven't been inhabited before is way less risky. So, you know, when we think like this, we completely ignore the fallenness of the world, but what, is, what does the Bible say? Is the Bible as simplistic in its understanding of the world? No. The Bible realistically recognizes that our world is utterly broken and ruled by idolatry and injustice. The world does not work the way it's supposed to. And there's a power that leads to decay. It's radically corrupted. And whenever we do gain authority over risks... Just give us time, and we use that authority for injustice. Humanity is incapable of using our authority purely for good. I mean, for every positive advance, and and there are many, 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 we can point to a deadly turn of events. So science has given us so many good things, but science has also created weapons of mass destruction that could literally destroy the world several times over, or that autocrats use to poison their own people. 
or the Internet provides the, the wonderful possibility of connecting with longtime friends. But all the research shows that the Internet just makes us feel less connected and more alone. And it provides uh, shady chat rooms where all sorts of illicit activity can flourish. You know, the idea that we can avoid suffering if only we had enough knowledge and resources is utterly wrong. But there's a second way this delusion is deadly. And frankly, this part of the delusion is even more dangerous. And here it is. When we insulate ourselves from risk, we ultimately do so at the expense of others. In this fallen world, to avoid suffering by insulating ourselves will necessarily increase somebody else's suffering. We just push those risks on other people. Let me, give you, let me give you the perfect illustration of this. In the Disney animated movie Frozen, when Elsa loses control of her powers, the kingdom falls into an endless winter, she flees to the mountains to get away, and when she gets up there, she builds an ice palace, and then what does she declare? She's like, I'm free. Right, the lesson the movie wants us to take away is, now that Elsa has let it go, I'm not going to sing it, now that she doesn't care what anybody else thinks, she's free, she's liberated. That's a bunch of nonsense. She's isolated, living in a self-constructed prison. Okay? When her sister comes to rescue her, Elsa is terrified, she's overcome by fear, and she deals a deadly blow to her sister. The kingdom, meanwhile, remember, is in an endless winter. So the only way that Elsa can be free, according to the Disney definition, is if she turns her back on the entire kingdom and on her sister, if she just lets go of on her, all her responsibilities to the rest of the world. But even then, she's not free. She's enslaved to her fear. She's enslaved to the fear of what other people might think if they were there. She hasn't escaped. She hasn't let it go. She's just let those fears isolate her in her own prison. And that is a picture of our struggle for strength to avoid suffering. If we grab at resources to protect ourselves, we expose other people who couldn't grab them first. If we flee, we leave other people in the mess. Life is brutish, nasty, and short. Others are vulnerable, and we compete like animals. So our efforts to avoid suffering backfire, and if we try to use strength to avoid suffering, we'll cause suffering for others. And that's why the Christian trajectory for life is so utterly radical. Because our world is utterly fallen, utterly ruined by sin, Jesus commands us to live a life in which we use power to share in suffering. Strength is not the opposite of suffering. It's how we engage a suffering world. Because the mission of the Christian is to bring order out of chaos, to make things that are good and very good, so that we can live a life of radical vulnerability. We're called to move towards suffering. We're called to take risks in love to alleviate suffering. Because in a world ruined by idolatry and injustice, the only way to alleviate suffering is to share in it. Because the most fundamental truth is that Jesus Christ came to earth and defeated sin and death and suffering by going to the cross and dying and by bearing our burdens and our sorrows.
So we too follow Jesus. We're called to accumulate strength so that we can move towards suffering. I mean, suffering is a certainty. Jesus promised it more than anything else if we follow him. Okay, so that's the mission of suffering. So second, the preparation. So Paul gives us three amazing metaphors for how to think about our mission. Right? We don't just say, okay, this is what we're called, but we actually prepare for it. So Paul says, be like a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Right? And in each case, he's communicating something deep about our mission and about how we prepare for our mission. Each works toward a hard goal, and that hard work entails real cost and vulnerability. So I want to take some time to just unpack those images, so sort of flesh out those ideas that are there um, associated with these three metaphors. So first, a soldier. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I was able to ask some of my military friends for some insight here. Um, So let me share with you some of what they told me. So first, when they read this text, they think, you know, the life of a soldier, both today and back then, is not a life of ease. You can expect long days, missed meals, uncomfortable living conditions, fear, anxiety, and sorrow. But you know that going in. Right? Nobody shows up in basic training and says, what's with all the push-ups? And can I sleep in this today? And, you know, can I get a nice haircut, please? Right? And nobody, when the enemy is firing at you, looks down at your gun and says, this was really unexpected. Right? Paul's saying, look, remember the first point of the sermon, how we're called to suffering? You're enlisted by Jesus to live a life of power and vulnerability, power for vulnerability. I mean, what did you think Jesus called you to when he said, pick up your cross and follow me? He really meant it. So the life of a soldier is not a life of ease. But second, military are sworn to obey the orders of those appointed over them. They're forbidden from speaking against the civilian authorities who direct them, right? So commander-in-chief, secretary of defense. You can't speak about your opinions regarding civil leadership while in uniform. Now, I think a lot of us non-military folks say, why on earth would that be? It's because soldiers are committed to something bigger than themselves. And the enterprise requires deep unity and trust. And any distraction would undermine the effort. But here's the counterintuitive thing. The ultimate goal of the military is not to make the generals look good. The goal is not to make the commander-in-chief look good. The goal is to preserve peace to fight off enemies, to defend the country. And that means protecting families and children and legal institutions and businesses back home. The goal is to defend the country so that those not in the military can flourish. And the way a soldier does that is by pleasing his officer. Now, let me read you what my friend sent me. Okay, so this is not my opinion. He said, because a good leader sets their needs and desires behind the needs and desires of those they lead, similar to Christ. There is a common misconception that military leadership is about telling soldiers what to do, and they do it. There's a time and a place for that, like final assault on a target. But more frequently, leadership is about providing purpose, direction, and motivation. Good soldiers recognize that their leaders, provided they're a good leader, care about them, and in turn want to please those who lead. They respect their leaders' capabilities and appreciate that their safety and success 
is frequently in the hands of their leaders. Now, that's military strategy from one of today's leaders. It's not 2,000 years ago in Israel. But I think the lesson applies. And the point is, Christ is that good leader. He's the one who sets the needs of his people before his own. He washes the feet of his disciples like a servant, servant, rather than demand respect. He goes to the cross before he commands us to pick up our own. He goes into the breach for us before he calls us to share in suffering. So Paul says, share in suffering like a good soldier. Please Christ who called you. Second, an athlete. Paul says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, I actually know something about athletics. I don't know anything about the military. Um, because believe it or not, this wimpy academic was a Division I varsity swimmer back in the day. I walked onto the winningest team in college history of any sport in history. Not when I was on the team, not because I was on the team. And I think it's because in the 50s they won a bunch, a bunch of meets. Um, so let me tell you, there are two ways to be a great competitor. And, you know, there's a classic example of this in the movie Chariots of Fire. You guys know the movie? So it's a movie about two Olympic runners who are driven by completely different motivations. So first, there's Harold Abrams, who's driven by the need to prove himself. He trains hard because he must win. He's fiercely competitive. He endures the training because it's the cost of winning. So at one point, and, so, and he ran the 100-yard dash. So at one point, he's talking to his trainer, and he tells him how he feels before the race. And he says this, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's what motivates most Olympic athletes, the need to justify their existence. I mean, you know, and if, you're exi if the justification of your reason for being here is on the line, you compete, you win. And that's why after the race is done, even if you have 23 gold medals like Michael Phelps, you still need to justify your existence. So let me tell you what uh, Chris Everett, who is a famous tennis champion, this is what she said after she retired. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. So you can be driven as an athlete to justify yourself. But then there's the second runner, Eric Little. And Eric, in real life, was a Presbyterian missionary. And after the Olympics, he went to China, spread the gospel, and he ultimately died in China at a young age in a prison camp. But that is a separate but amazing story. So Eric would run, and when he ran, he had a terrible posture. He sort of would run looking like this, straight up at the sky. You know, why is that? Well, at one point in the movie, he tells his sister says, I believe God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. If that is how you feel about running, I mean, that is a motivation for training, for discipline, and for competition. 
It will drive you to win, but it won't drive you into the ground. And I know a very small something about that. God didn't make me a fast swimmer like Eric was a fast runner. I was the worst swimmer on the Yale team by a lot, and maybe the worst swimmer ever on the team. I had no chance of ever scoring a point. I did not ever score a point. (laughs) But... I loved the training. I loved the challenge. I loved getting in the pool at 5.30 in the morning and swimming several miles before the sun came up. I loved the feeling of day in, day out, pushing myself farther than I did the last day, farther than I did the week before. Training, you know, the pain, the exhaustion. I mean, it hardly felt like suffering. I delighted in all the things that my teammates and I would do that incidentally made us better swimmers. It made us more likely to win races, but it was also a joy in and of itself. And still, to this day, whenever months go by and uh, and I'm out of the pool for a while because life gets busy, um, I don't know about you, whenever I jump back in for the first time, I tear up. I choke up. It's underwater. Nobody can see. And I always, every time, I think about my high school coach, Pete who he was an incredible, is an incredible man, a strong, tough man of integrity and dignity and character. And Pete never told us we needed to justify our existence in the pool. And as a result, he gave every one of us a crown that outlasted anything we could have won in the race. Because the training, the discipline, the, the suffering of being an athlete, those were the best days of my life, and they shaped me. He gave us character, not a few seconds off our time. They were joyous. And that's what our Christian life ought to look like. Yes, it is a life of discipline that can often be exhausting, trying, and difficult, and maybe it should start at 5.30 in the morning. But do you get great joy out of waking up and going to God in prayer? When you fail... Do you feel God's pleasure as you confess your sins to him and freely receive his forgiveness? Do you feel God's pleasure when you open up the Bible and see what has he received? What has he what has he revealed about himself for thousands of years? What is he revealing to you today about himself? Do you feel God's pleasure when you open your heart and your hands to a needy friend And you know that the suffering that you will bear as a result, that you're suffering with Jesus. Do you feel God's pleasure when you avert your eyes from things you're not authorized to see? Or do you feel God's pleasure when even though you are sure the argument was 95% your spouse's fault, you apologize first? Or are there people in your life that you can say, my faith would not be the same without that person? They have enriched my walk with God. Are you that person for anybody? So there's soldier, athlete, and then farmer. Paul says, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. I'll be briefer on this point. In those days, farming was central to survival. You don't farm, you don't eat, you don't live. You, your family, and maybe your society. And toiling under the hot Middle Eastern sun was hard work. But the fruit of that labor was that you and your society would survive another season. And Jesus invites us into a great harvest. He says that the fields are white, ready to be picked. 
If you don't share the gospel with anybody, you won't reap a harvest. If you don't pour out yourself caring for somebody who is down and out, you won't be part of revitalizing a child of God, of revitalizing your neighbor. If you don't plead in prayer for God to work, well, you won't be part of thanking him when he does. And he will. So we've seen the mission of suffering, the preparation for suffering, finally, the victory to suffer well. So what is the story of your life? I mean, if you're going to use power to increase your vulnerability, to move towards suffering, to alleviate the suffering of others, you need the right story. We don't sort of naturally do that. You need to know the mission and the trajectory, yes, but you need more. It's not enough to just say, I'm a soldier, I'm an athlete, I'm a farmer, I've got my mentality. Paul doesn't just say, here's the mission, here's the pattern, go. Paul tells Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then after these three metaphors, he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Because a story has a beginning and a middle, but a story also has an end. And this is Paul's story. My gospel. He says, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. My gospel. My gospel means it's good news for me. I have taken hold of it personally. This is not just good news in general. It's my good news It's my story. And the gospel of Jesus is such good news for Paul that Paul is willing to endure everything for it. Because the gospel message is news of victory accomplished for you. When Paul gives us this poem at the end, the last few verses, notice what he does. So first, Paul tells us the trajectory of Christianity. He says, if you have died with Jesus, you will live with him. The promise of the gospel is that death, I mean, not only the risk of vulnerability, but guaranteed suffering, right? Death, like that's a sure thing. Death is the way we get real life. Jesus went through death and rose from the grave as the king over all creation. And that's how Paul can say this. And then second, Paul says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So there's a payoff at the end. Okay, it's good. At the end of the training, there's a crown. But then there's this jarring moment. Paul says, if we deny Christ, he will deny us. I mean, thanks for the encouragement, Paul. I mean, what? Why is he doing that? To put into sharp relief. That the only source of our salvation, the only hope we have to endure and finish strong, it's the next verse. If we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Your only hope in life and in death is that Christ was faithful before you. You will be faithless. You will fail. You will disobey. You will choose to strengthen yourself to avoid suffering. You will be indifferent to the suffering of others. But your hope is that you belong to Jesus. And you belong to Jesus because he bought you. You belong to Jesus because of what he did. Jesus was the soldier who followed the orders of his father 
enduring suffering to go to the cross and to take out the ultimate enemies of sin and death. Jesus was the champion, as some translations have it, the author and the finisher of our faith who ran the race before him and was crowned with thorns before he was crowned king over all creation. And Jesus is the farmer who sowed the word. And as this passage says, the word of God is not bound because Jesus is also the seed that fell to the ground and in dying bore much fruit. And he is the first fruit of the resurrection. And if we belong to him, we will share in his indestructible life. If you belong to Jesus, then your hope rests in the promise that he cannot deny himself. Do you doubt if you're good enough? If you've endured suffering faithfully enough or if you will in the future? Do you doubt whether or not you deserve to be crowned at the end? You should. But your good news, the gospel, is not that you deserve Christ's love. It's that Christ's faithfulness is the guarantee that you will persevere. He knows his sheep by name. Not one of them will be lost. The good news is that you're not good enough. When you were Christ's enemy, he died for you. Is that your good news? Is that your story? No other story will strengthen you to pour yourself out for the eternal glory of others. Now, before we pray, I want to I invite anybody, if this isn't your story, take this opportunity, and you want it to be, take this opportunity to reach out to God and say, God, I want this to be my story. And if you don't know what that takes, if you don't know what that means, just call out to God and say, God, I want this to be my story. Make this my story. And if you've been a Christian a long time, but you want to recommit your life to that story, take this time too again to reach out and say, God, make this my story. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you that you have accomplished everything. And we know that we are part of your plan to redeem and to restore all that is broken, to make all things new to share in your glory as we share in your suffering. And God, we pray that we would remember our part in that story. God, that we serve you. God, we pray that your word, which is not bound, would strengthen us. God, we pray that the gift of the power of your Holy Spirit would rest upon us. God, strengthening our faith and strengthening our devotion to you. God, increase our love. God, we cry out to you. We take hold of what we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.